0: For years, outer space has been a source of intrigue, inspiration, and imagination for many. Here at IQT, we harnessed our intellectual curiosity and perspectives on the commercial space industry years ago, and continue to be interested and invested in how space ecosystem develops in the future. While it may seem like the stuff of science fiction, it is not too far-fetched to imagine robots mining the moon for resources and raw materials, or a lunar economy based on out-of-this-world manufacturing, or even a family vacation among the stars. Maybe even one day, we might be able to see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. Welcome to the IQT podcast. Today's episode concludes our three-part intro series where we explore how IQT's space investments and insights have helped advise and shape the technology to help enhance national security and beyond. On our previous two episodes, we covered the origins of IQT space efforts and current initiatives and focuses. And on today's episode, we'll focus on what we predict the future will look like for this ever-evolving domain. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesara, and I'd like to welcome back Christy Bradford and Tom Gillespie, who we heard from our previous two space podcasts. Christy is a senior technology architect on Inqutels Field Technologies team. She's a space technology strategist with experience working across the civil, commercial, national security, and international space communities in areas as diverse as technology development, program management, space innovation policy, and the global space investment landscape. Tom Gillespie serves as managing partner on InQtel's investment team and as investment lead for InQtel's field technologies practice. He has led a significant number of IQT's investments in commercial space ventures over the past seven years, including launch vehicles, small satellite constellations, space situational awareness, and satellite componentry. And new to the IQT podcast today is Clayton Williams, a managing director at our IQT Australia office headquartered in Sydney. Prior to InQtel, Clayton developed innovative signal processing approaches in support of the NRO, NGA, and US Navy to address space domain challenges spanning product quality, automation, processing, and distribution. Christy, Tom, Clayton, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. So let's get started. Today we're talking about the future. Might be worth discussing what we really mean when we talk about the future. Are we talking about a year, a few months, weeks, a decade, a millennium? Where is it that we're going to focus our discussion and scope our our topics of interest today? Open question to uh, to all of you. Let's start with Clayton.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of a dangerous topic, especially for a twenty minute podcast, uh, uh, because you can get you know anywhere from from Star Trek to uh, you know just trying to get the nuts and bolts of manufacturing down. But I think uh, for this conversation, uh, scoping it, I think we can probably give a, a, an interesting story in the next ten years or so of.
0: What might be coming down the pipe space great focus on it so we'll, we'll set the scope to 10 years from now so it's 2021 right now 2031, between now and 2031 for those of you listening we're looking over the next decade uh, let's start by talking about business models Tom, we've discussed a lot in, pre, in the previous podcast about the existing business models and you know historical business models what do you see in the in the landscape for the next 10 years in terms of things that'll stay the same things that
2: will evolve what should we be looking out for yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, in, just in terms of the time horizon, I might actually, I'm, I'm coming at it really from the investment standpoint. So from a venture capital time horizon, you know, funds are typically about in that 10-year range, really making investments though over the next five or so. So that's almost kind of more how I'm thinking about it in terms of the, the future as an investor. Um, you know, what's going to change in the next few years? I think, uh, I think we'll see a migration to business models with um, more commercial baked into them um when we first saw commercial space a few years ago there was some lip service around that but really the reality has been the last few years um more of a focus on government markets i think that'll start changing in the next couple of years um i think we'll see a lot more investors spill into this sector um some will come in and come out uh but i think it's gonna be a much broader set of investors and i think uh you know we'll, we'll see interesting funding mechanisms along the way too i've seen things like um uh, you know, interesting uses of markets to to uh, fund alternative strategies. So I think we'll see some innovative financing strategies as well along the way here. Excellent, thanks, Tom. Question to Clayton or Christy. So Tom mentions this shift from
0: a focus from uh, government funding to commercial funding interesting interesting developments and capabilities uh, leaning that in that way as well. Where do both of you see dr- uh, requirements coming from? who's who's going to be driving the requirements specifically? What will this look like? Uh, how will we see uh, commercial industry sort of take a leading role in developing capabilities uh, in this space, pun intended?
3: Yeah, so I think it's going to be very much a, a combination. Well, I think we will see a shift uh, to more commercial, as Tom said. I think that um, w- government's still going to be a, a really critical component to the ecosystem. And so, but I think we're going to get a, a better balance, um, especially as a lot of these companies begin to deploy. Uh, their full constellations and uh, start to explore product offerings um, that are more commercially oriented. Whereas the government side, there's already proven demand there because the government has been leveraging similar technologies for for so long. Uh, But it's hard to uh, really understand what the demand is on the commercial side until those capabilities are on orbit and can actually be uh, proven out um, and products developed around them. And I think we're going to see that uh, product development really happening in in the next five years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think to of emphasize what Christy was saying is is you know the the number one customer for remote sensing certainly. I'm sure it's a significant split of comms as well. Is 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 the government customer, or government's customer, um, and and the long term justification of all these uh, competing uh, commercial endeavors. Uh, it'll be interesting to see you know who who these governments are able to support and and which which companies are able to pivot enough of their business to sustain it commercially. And and, and when we say commercially, it's it's interesting, right? Because we actually just saw an article yesterday uh, from CNN uh, uh, that's basically watching the build of the launch site in the Arctic uh, from the Russians. So so these these kind of missions that were uh, fully in the government domain are kind of shifting over into uh, news articles, NGOs, and, and different folks that have kind of these worldwide regulatory policy or, or news type of, uh, of missions. And then I think that the, the next phase to that is, is, you know, big agriculture, big business, all these kinds of oil and gas, all these big industries that really can benefit uh, from remote sensing and tracking large areas and large systems um, uh, as, as the cost of space comes down and as these analytics companies can actually flesh out their products
2: and make them reliable users. I, if I could join in I, I think uh, synthetic aperture radar is an interesting example of it's pretty illustrative of the, the government versus commercial you know when we first saw these companies you know probably five plus years ago they were ostensibly going to be commercially uh, commercially focused um, they weren't really able to do that early on and so I think they pivoted back to government markets for a while um, what we're seeing is that I think over the next few years, you know, SAR data is really tough to work with. Um, There aren't aren't a lot of commercial applications for that, but there probably will be at some point. And it really is a case of, you know, getting that data out there, um, helping the commercial market understand how to work with it and see the use cases for it and the market's gonna develop from that. So does the commercial market exist in any form today? Not really, but I think as we start learning how to use that data and and the different applications, um, it's really gonna take off, it's just not yet, so.
3: And I would add to that that I think that uh, there's a, a semi-good analogy that we can look to when it comes to this remote sensing data, um, and that is how uh, GPS applications evolved over time is that when uh, GPS, which obviously was you know it was and still is a, a government um, program, uh, once it was made available uh, to uh, the civilian communities and people could start uh, using it for commercial applications, then it took many, many years for it to develop into the ecosystem we see de- today, where use of GPS is, is ubiquitous and is uh, in basically every industry that you can think of, but it's sort of uh, hidden behind the scenes, is that I think over time, we may see a similar thing develop in uh, from remote sensing data, where it becomes uh, used in so many different ways that we often don't even realize that we're using space data in our everyday lives. But it's important to remember it took a very, very long time for GPS data to be used in the ways we see today, and it's going to take a similarly long time for it to mature on the remote sensing side.
0: And Christy, just to provide a sense of scale and comparison, well, in your in your GPS example, <clears throat> it's safe to say that uh, perhaps the timeline in GPS begins sometime in the 90s, uh, and roughly from then till now, 20 plus years or so, till till mass adoption, just ubiquitous adoption and availability. Uh, first of all, is that accurate in relation to GPS? And secondly, would you suggest that we're looking at something similar uh, in, in this regard?
3: Yeah, so I, I think your your timing is uh, is accurate. Is that we're looking at about a 20 year ta- time period from when the capabilities started to come online uh, to when we see this ubiquitous use? And so I think we're right now at the stage where we're really starting to see uh, a variety of sensing modalities come online at the um, you know, level of uh, fidelity and revisit time uh, that um, you know these companies have been talking about for for some time, and so I think we're sort of looking 20 years out from now, which I get is t- 10 years longer than we said we were going to address. Um, but uh, I do think that we're going to slowly see over the next 20 years um, new new applications emerge uh, that are going to um, proliferate the the use of remote sensing data.
0: A quick moment for our uh, audience, uh, Clayton Tom. You both mentioned SAR data, synthetic aperture radar. For our uh, for our listeners, could you define just what that is, and perhaps what it looks like, and, and when, what kinds of uh, what kinds of information SAR data conveys? Yeah,
1: yeah. I'll take a shot at it. Um, uh, it it's basically you send a, 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 an RF signal down uh, to the Earth. You get the reflected signal back at the system, and you do that over time. And what you're able to do is construct. Uh, a short video or an image of of that data uh, as it reflects off of different objects and so that difference in reflectance can tell you different information about
3: uh
1: not just the size and shape but the the material properties of the objects you're looking at um and what's interesting about it is uh uh, you know that that doesn't rely on the sun in any way so you can get the same image uh uh, day night or during storms there's an interesting article i think from from eyesight that we can probably share that uh that shows you know, this application while monitoring a volcano. And that's been one of the uh, largest challenge for remote sensing even from airborne platforms because you don't want to be anywhere near it. And so synthetic after radar is able to provide you that consistent imagery through the, the smoke, through the cloud,
0: um, day and night, um, to kind of track uh, these, these kind of natural disasters as they occur. I see, interesting. Uh- one thing that we mentioned that, it's, uh, that, that, that is interesting to me is this idea of, uh, we, we we took GPS as an analogous example to sort of what we're talking about it in terms of the future of the, the space uh, ecosystem. This concept of dual use. So, you know, we, we discussed uh, the shift from government to, to commercial, both in terms of funding and and where, you know, uh, demand will be coming from and where capabilities will be shaped to cater to. Can, can one of you describe just what dual use means on behalf of our listeners? Again, this concept of, you know, something being perhaps invented in one Uh, domain and then becoming useful or pertinent to another domain, a little bit more detail there would be great.
3: Sure, I can jump in on that one. So um, dual use, you know, you could define it as simply a technology that has more than one use, but usually when the term dual use is used, it has a specific connotation, which means that uh, in addition to having a uh, military or national security use, it also has um, some sort of civilian or commercial use. Um, and so that's, that's basically the idea of, of dual use is it's some sort of technology uh, that could be used um, for both national security as well as for non-national security applications.
0: Oh, very good. Thank you. So let's talk about challenges. We're, 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 this is a podcast about the future. Something that's really interesting to think about and make predictions on are, are challenges, uh, obstacles, things that will have to be overcome or hurdles that will need to be uh, crossed when dealing with uh, this industry as it grows. What do you see as some of the toughest or enduring challenges that uh, need to be addressed, overcome as we enter the future. Uh, we'll start with uh, Clayton, and then uh, Christian, and then Tom.
1: Yeah, I think uh, uh, you know the the cliche is space is hard, and I think that you know a lot of a lot of the lessons learned from governments over the last you know 30, 40 years in space may not be fully realized by some of the companies that are that are entering into the space, and that's from. You know the, the challenges of, of the manufacturing, the challenges of launch, the challenges of having a system in space that that functions and doesn't break, uh, and then providing you know reliable software updates to those systems. Uh, is, it's 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 really you know I think I'm describing like five startups when I talk about all the challenges uh, that that, that it entails. Um, so being able to, to do that effectively and efficiently uh, when you have you know. Uh, 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 investors who are looking for return on investment is an extremely challenging thing. I think there are a lot of programs in the government that got canceled uh, due to funding overruns, and you can only imagine the pressure. is even higher for for these companies.
3: Yeah, I would uh, add to that that I think uh, sort of the umbrella term of space sustainability encapsulates a a lot of the challenges moving forward, um, which is that as more and more activity is happening in space... It presents a lot more uh, challenges, although it also does present more opportunities and does open new types of markets. Uh, and that is an area that we at IQT look into. Uh, we refer to it as Space Auxiliary Services. Um, and I know I've talked about that on a previous podcast, uh, so, but to dive into it a little bit more than I, I did previously, um, we, we see four pillars of Space Auxiliary Services. Um, the most near term is space traffic management which I think is a a cornerstone to space sustainability issues, which is how do we understand the space environment? How do we track everything that's going on in that environment? How do we uh, characterize what's going on, Um, be able to detect changes in in that environment? How do we make sure that uh, different satellite operators are communicating with each other? How do we minimize the amount of debris creating events that are occurring? How do we uh, deal with debris that is already up there? how do we prevent more debris from being created in the future? And so that's an area that I think is going to be really critical and is an area that is incredibly complex because you're dealing with such a diversity of actors in space, is that you're not just dealing with U.S. companies and the U.S. government, you're dealing with uh, non-state actors, you're dealing with state actors, you're dealing with a huge array of uh, different players in space, and that diversity of players is continuing to grow over time as more and more countries begin to place strategic priorities on space and as commercial space becomes more and more international.
0: Interesting. Tom, any perspectives from you on on challenges maybe from the, the business front,
2: um, yeah. funding, finances? Yeah, exactly. It's um, So I think from a funding standpoint, it's going to be interesting. If you look back over the past few years, I think one of the things that sort of held the sector back for a little bit is it was the lack of um financial exits you know ipos acquisitions um there were very few that could be cited one was skybox which was probably 2012 or 13 i can't remember um that was you know 500 million dollar exit to google which sounds like a lot but really in the venture context it not that much and that was really the only one we've been for a long time in the present we've now got all of a sudden the special purpose acquisition companies that are um you know exit vehicles for a lot of space companies i think we've got 10 or 12 now that have gone out in the past uh year and a half or so um that's great my question is is that sustainable and you know how long does that last um you know a lot of these companies need a lot of money um the spac vehicle is one way to do that Uh, but i don't know if we look forward a few years if that's going to continue to be kind of the, the way things go so I think you know that's really an obstacle is is where do you get the money to fund these things and um, you know how available is it not not just now but, uh, but looking at a few years. Um, the one thing I'll say I, I do think there will be funding you know available over the course of time. I just don't think it's going to be a straight line path of progress. I think we're going to you know have have uh, you know moments when we have a lot of funding available and it's going to fall back a little bit and it's going to recover, but I don't think it's going to be a straight line path over the next ten years.
1: Okay. And I, think, I think it's interesting, too, that there's probably going to be some consolidation. I think you saw it. You know, there's a, a, a ton of innovation that happened in aerospace in the 50s and 60s. And then, you know, we all kind of ended up uh, with, with the same, you know, jet body type, 747 type plane uh, that we use for uh, you know, nearly all of our, at least, uh, human, human uh, movement across the Earth. And so I think you're going to see the same thing. We see some really innovative space things happening, but are they the most efficient way uh, to do business in space? And uh, is this, you know, really bespoke sensor that's super expensive uh, bringing you enough value to justify its cost versus something off the shelf? Um, so, so there's all these kinds of questions that are going to play out. Um, uh, and it will be interesting to see uh, how those companies combined uh, 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 go under or, or get acquired by large players in the space.
0: Clayton, you're reminding me of something uh, in, in relatively recent history in my life, uh, and that's the dot-com the era, the internet dot-com era. And Tom, I think you and I have had conversations about this. It's open, open commentary and thoughts on, and perspectives on how, uh, how similar or different uh, is what we anticipate in the future to occur in the space realm when it comes to companies uh, starting up, getting funded, maybe consolidating, defragmenting. Uh, and then operating versus, you know, not being able to operate. How how similar is that trajectory looking in the space realm as compared to the internet.com era? I'll tell you very simply, uh, looking back at it now, of course, uh, I everything was an internet company back then. I, I recall literally everything I saw uh, that, that, and every, anything anyone talked about was like, oh, this is, this is my .com company. This is my new internet company. Uh, are we going to hear the same thing? This is my space company. I'm doing space. Um, and if so, what are... What is it that's going to be meaningful for for something to be a, quote, space company versus might not be so meaningful?
3: Well, I'll I'll jump in on that one. Just on the question of what is a space company is, I think uh, already it's really hard to define what a space company is, because you could argue that Uber and Lyft are space companies because their business model is dependent upon GPS. Now, no one really categorizes them as space companies, but that shows how uh, ubiquitous space already is, is that. Things that we don't even think of as space companies are dependent upon space infrastructure, and in fact, you know, going back to your previous question, I would say that's almost one of the challenges over the next five years is, or even longer, is getting people to better understand just how dependent we are as a society on space, so that they understand why there is so much investment going into space, and I think that's um, that that's just something that we need to. Uh, grapple with uh, because there is this disconnect between sort of those who understand space and understand how ubiquitous it is and the average person that thinks the space simply as space exploration.
0: That's a good point.
1: I, I think it's also there, there's like a double uh, uh, challenge there. One is these companies that uh, are launching, building, and operating space systems, those are, those are full-time jobs. So you, you, you used to hear a lot of the companies saying, we're actually just an AI company, and, and step one is, is you know, build and launch a satellite. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you're getting less of that. And, and to Christy's point, that, that secondary uh, market or those, those companies are waiting for uh, the right time, the right price point to develop analytical products on that data uh, uh, as a space company, as a space services company, here on the ground, just doing software. So there's there's kind of this cascading uh, uh, chicken or the egg problem on on to the timing of when those constellations will be sufficient enough to build reliable ground businesses off of that data.
0: Tom, your thoughts on the internet.com comparison, the boom and the bust cycle there and how it may relate to the topic at hand today.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, Vishal. So I I, um, speak to you as somebody who actually started an internet accelerator in 1999. Which, if you know the timeline of this, was a terrible time. It was right, right at the peak. <laughs> so, um, what what I uh, um, a little bit of what I see, you know, has some um, some of the same markings that we saw in the in the dot com economy. It feels a little bit, in some ways, like it's 1997 or so in uh, you know in the space economy. So we're starting to see a little bit of froth. Um, we're starting to see some things get funded that maybe shouldn't. Um, but I don't think we're kind of in full frenzy yet, like like we were in the dot com a couple of years later. Um, I think there are a couple of ways that's different though, um, and one is um, you know space has a lot of national security implications, obviously. Um, consumer internet really didn't have that, and so I think it's um, to some degree, you know, that's always going to play a role in how we think about space, whereas, whereas the you know the consumer internet of the '90s did not. Um, I also think if you look at the history there once we came out of the bust, there are a lot of good companies that got formed that were based on the internet um, and did interesting things, but um, you know, ultimately we're, we're just good businesses, period. And I think we'll see some of that too as we, as we work through some of the bumps here.
3: I would also add to that that um, uh, hype cycles are something that we see all the time in new technologies uh, as they're coming online and, and being adopted. And so the dot-com uh, boom and bust is a perfect example of, of a hype cycle. And so I think we are in a hype cycle right now around space. And I think we are going to eventually, um, you know, hit the, the trough of disillusionment as it is called. Uh, but I don't think that, you know, when that happens, that means that, you know, commercial space is dead and we need to go back to government only space. Um, I, it's it's sort of a natural part of the process that this this hype occurs mm-hmm ahead of the time that it takes for technology to mature and and uh, proliferate through, through a population. And so I expect, as Tom said, that we are going to see a, a dip in the uh, future, exactly when that will be, hard to say. Uh, but when that dip happens, uh, I think you're going to have some people sort of trying to abandon commercial space. And I don't think that's the right move. I think, you know, there's a longer tail here that we need to watch play out.
0: Predictions worth tracking, certainly. Even with the hype cycle, I'm going to assume that it's important for the U.S. and the private sector to continue to care about developing space capabilities. Uh, at think of course, we have uh, believed this for quite some time. Uh, and in case you haven't listened to the previous two podcasts associated with this topic, please do so. You can find those on our podcast page. My question to all three of you uh, is that do we continue to care going to the future, we as in the U.S. and the private sector, do we continue to care about this industry, Uh, For the same reasons that we've talked about uh, in in previous uh, recordings and and historical uh, discussions. Or do you presume that there would be other reasons and other uh, perhaps profitable, lucrative or strategically important reasons for the U.S. and the private sector to continue to develop space capabilities? In other words, is, is what we care about this industry going to remain the same or will there be other things that we care about going to the future?
1: I think maybe I'll touch on the government side and maybe let Tom talk about the commercial side or, or the expansion of, of what the government cares about uh, that, that kind of tends on the commercial side. Um, you know the government's been in the business of picking winners for the past uh, well since, since the inception of space and so now it's a different game where uh, they really need to develop a, a common set of standards and endpoints and uh, and processing mechanisms to generally accept this data to really have uh, the maximum value from commercial space. So if, if you you know if you if you decide to pick a winner, then you have one out of you know the ten competition uh, uh, or competitive um, uh, companies in that space. Uh, but but two, if you if you build a common interface and pay a small amount of money to those companies to develop that interface, now you have ten times that capability, uh, and you're really a, a best customer. Uh, and then those things that I think were talked about in the earlier. Uh, uh, the passive space is kind of that revisit rate is really important, the ability to have uh, time series data over time. Uh, so, so leveraging as many sources as possible is kind of a new game, a new mindset for uh, certainly the U.S. government. And, and how to contract to that and how to sustain these businesses, uh, but not be the, the sole sustainer of these businesses is, is the, the inflection point that needs to be here.
3: I just want to foot stomp that in that I think it really is important uh, that the, the government start to take a sort of uh, agnostic technological view of their engagement with commercial so that it isn't just, we've picked the winners and we're to dependent on those companies, but it is this, uh, we can have any commercial company plug in to our workflows um, so that if a company fails, uh, that the, the government's not... You know, shit out of luck because now they don't have a capability they're reliant upon, but instead they have a portfolio uh, approach to how they're thinking about commercial.
2: And, and Michelle, from the um, the commercial side, um, I, I guess first I'll, I'll answer something that's not commercial, which is we're going to continue to care as a nation uh, because our adversaries do. So they're up there, they're creating capabilities in space. So the United States is going to care. Uh, on an ongoing basis about the space sector. Um, on the commercial side, you know, we're gonna to continue to find new ways to do things in space, new uh, new opportunities. Um, as Christy pointed out, where they're uh, comment about space auxiliary services, uh, the more satellites that get up, get up there, the more activity that happens up there, the more opportunities there are gonna be commercially to support that. Um, in addition, you know, we'll be able to find new things to do with remote sensing, will go further out than just kind of uh, low Earth orbit and, and uh, nearby Earth. It's going to be uh, a lunar economy and beyond. So, you know, it's going to take time to get there, but but absolutely, you know, the commercial markets are going to develop alongside that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, touching on that, it, it, it's increasingly complex. And so all the systems to, to make that happen need to be in place. So it's not just about... You know, having computer vision algorithms on your optical systems, but now that whole computer vision architecture needs to be built for. We talked about synthetic aperture radar or hyperspectral, or, or all the RF companies that are that are being formed and, and doing interesting things in space. And and I think uh, uh, really innovative companies like Spire are are trying to maximize the capabilities of their constellations. So now you're seeing one satellite that can do ten different things uh, simultaneously or near simultaneously, and so. Uh, trying to understand how to fuse that data, um, how to get it to the ground, how to process it, and out to customers in a, in a timeline that's reasonable is it, all a lot of hard work that needs to be figured
3: out. Yeah, I, w- I would add to that that um, I think one of the biggest changes we're going to see is a fundamental change in the space data ecosystem. Uh, is is right now it is fairly siloed, and you know it's each sort of company trying to to figure things out themselves. Um, I think especially with the the entry of companies like uh, Amazon and, and Microsoft coming in uh, with you know cloud computing for space, as we see a uh, different way of thinking about how we're doing onboard processing, uh, how uh, satellites are communicating with each other in space, I think that the the entire data ecosystem is going to to evolve to something that I'm not sure anyone can fully even imagine right now.
0: Tom, Christy, Clayton, our time is almost up, but before we drop off, a fun question for all of you to consider. Would you go to space in the next two, five or 10 years? We've been talking today about the 10 year time horizon when considering the future. Uh, Space tourism certainly is something that uh, is interesting currently, as we've sort of heard about uh, the billionaires in space. Barring cost concerns, if you were all faced with the opportunity to go into low earth orbit, uh within the next 10 years would you or would you not go why or why not and we'll start with uh, we'll start with Clayton
1: uh I guess I'm maybe the pessimist or uh it doesn't not, the answer is no uh, not two not five not ten I'd rather be on a sailboat
0: <laughs> very good Christy
3: Um, I guess I would say uh, I don't think it's fair to say barring any financial concerns, because in my opinion, that's actually one of the challenges that the space sector has had for so long is that it's all been about, well, what can we do rather than, well, what can we do within the cost constraints that exist and the economic constraints that exist? And so I think once you put that into the equation, which is a really important part of the equation, uh, then... You know, may, maybe I I would be able to afford to probably not go into space, but maybe a suborbital or not go into Leo, but maybe a suborbital flight within ten years. But to be honest, I, I don't know that IQT pays me enough.
2: <laughs> Tom, you want to be a star man? So I'm so the opposite. Yeah, I I, I watched the uh, you know the first uh, SpaceX man Dragon capsule launch. What I guess a year ago or so, um, and when I when I saw that, I said to my kids, man, I'd love to do that. And so, they looked at me like I was nuts. But, uh, you know, so so absolutely. Uh, it probably depends on the company. I think if SpaceX is offering a ride, I'd probably do it sooner than maybe some of the others. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'd go. <laughs> I uh, okay so we've got a, a a no we've
0: got a maybe and we've got a yes I'll I'll throw my hat into the ring I'm a I'm a yes after a certain amount of time I have a I have a hard rule uh, after I got burned by the great CD-ROM wars of uh, 1995 I bought a 2x CD-ROM reader and then like a week later a 4x came out and then like a month later a 48x came out and I was stuck with this 2x for like 7 years it was the worst uh, so, for that reason, I, fo- I follow the following rule, which simply is whenever something new fangled comes out, wait five years because it's going to be way better, way faster, way cheaper. My prediction is that we'll see something similar when it comes to uh, space tourism. Tom, Chrissy, Clayton, thank you so much for your time today. I've had a great time discussing the next 10 years of uh, what the future looks like in the space industry and the space ecosystem. Uh, to our listeners, in case you want to learn more about what we've talked about today, I can point you to. Uh, the other two podcasts in this series, you can find those at the IQT uh, homepage. In addition, we've got a handful of blogs about our space efforts. You can check those out at the IQT blog at iqt.org front slash blog. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our guests for being here. And we look forward to talking to you at the next IQT podcast. Take care now.